everybody. Um, thanks. This is really exciting. There's two cameras that I'm looking at, so I'm going to do my best to try to look at both cameras. Um, you know, Facebook Live requires this portrait, and YouTube allows us to do landscape, and so we're trying to adjust with all of that. Um, as you can see, and as you, as you guys already know, we are a wonderful, beautiful community, um, and we do the best that we can, but what's so wonderful about Spark is um, I see a ton of you commenting and interacting online and um, already checking in with everybody, and that's just a really absolutely beautiful thing and wonderful thing. So we can't thank you enough for joining us. On the off chance, maybe there is somebody out there who's joining us for the very first time. Um, I know there's so much disruption that's happening right now with the church and gatherings and all sorts of communities and stuff like that. So if you happen to, fa- uh, happen to have found us and you're online and, and visiting us, so I just want to extend a special welcome to you, and we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us and enjoyed the music and uh, the message. And uh, one day soon, you will get to experience the very, very best of what Spark is, and that is the community of Spark, the people of Spark. Um, and I will say that's one thing that I'm currently lamenting right now. This has been super fun, and the four of us have had a fantastic time. Um, but here's, here's the deal. Every single one of us were made to be connected with one another, to be in community, and to feel one another, to handshake and to hug and to hear one another's voices in a room and stuff like that. So there's both joy and excitement about the opportunity to still be able to do this in the midst of the current health uh, crisis that we're in and the necessary requirements that we have to care for our civic community, etc. But there is also a lamentation that we can't be in the same room together. So I just wanted to kind of call that out. And before I get to kind of the bulk of the message that I wanted to share with you that, I, um, that I'm hoping will tie right into our context and the season that we're in, um, I did want to highlight this and to call out a couple things about this season and time. You know, every Every community, every church is having to make um, an adjustment at, at this particular time, and it is hard because this is what is true, and hopefully you can see this again um, on the keynote streaming that we have. We were made for community and connection and touch, and during this particular season, it's going to be a challenge for many of us, and so I'd like to call out um, just some preliminary comments that this disruption that we're currently in is not just a disruption of our activity, but it's actually a disruption of our souls, meaning um, there is sadness and loneliness and isolation that can be exacerbated during times like this. There's uncertainty. I love the songs that Junior picked for today because they spoke deeply to fear and anxiety and about the, the love and the power of God to overcome that fear and that anxiety. But it's also important for us to call it out and to say our souls are being disrupted. I've talked to several sparkers who are already feeling, in the very short period of time that we've had, already feeling a sense of isolation and sense of loneliness. And one of the things that I've absolutely loved about this community so far that I want to share with you is that this Spark community has already banded together to do what we can and more of what we can to mitigate that challenge in that season that we're in. Robert Lustig wrote a brilliant book, The Hacking of the American Mind, which is primarily about how sugar overtakes our neurobiology, um, primarily through dopamine receptors. Um, But in his book, he also points out what is the other chemical of happiness, which he calls serotonin. Well, he doesn't call that. It's called serotonin. And uh, dopamine is that hit that you get that feels really, really good. And, but the problem with dopamine is that you need more and more and more and more of it in order to feel satisfied. 
And what Robert Lustig has pointed out is that there, are, there is another uh, definition of happiness and joy, maybe what we would call, that is not driven primarily by, by dopamine, but driven by serotonin. And serotonin, as he puts it, is that chemical in our brain that is driven into our, ourselves, and it feels good, and his definition, and we don't need any more. So dopamine is it feels good, I have to have more of it to keep feeling good, and serotonin is that feeling of, ah, that feels really good. I don't need any more. It's contentment. It's like this true sense of happiness. And he, he points out four C's in his book that help to um, grow serotonin happiness. And he goes all the way back to kind of the ancient Greek philosophers as well as to what actually, what does it mean to be happy? And he talks about four C's, connection, contribution, coping, and cooking, which I absolutely love, cooking. And these four, he talks about connection, feeling connected with another person. And that can be bonding, that can be physical touch, that could be sharing anything, um, that kind of connection. Contribution, feeling the sense that my life is actually worthy and valuable, even during times of disruption and even during, during times where we're uncertain, to know that your life is still valuable to a community or to other people. Coping, one of my favorite quotes from his book is, don't just do something, stand there. And his idea there is oftentimes when we're in disruption, uh, we're constantly busy because we're trying to find things. And sometimes what we need to do is just sit and be. And rather than pursuing what we think might be the nice next fix, we're actually just coping with it. We sit and rest and we uh, steady ourselves. And then cooking um, which is the idea of nourishment, but it's also the idea of creativity. It's the idea that you're flexing your brain in new and profound ways. I uh, loved that model, and I want to share with you some of the things that Sparkers have been doing um, over the season, over this last season, that I think are really helpful towards that end, and the things that we are thinking about and attempting to do to help mitigate the loneliness of this particular season. Well, obviously, the first thing you guys are already doing, join us um, for services online every single week. We're not quite sure exactly how it's going to go. For example, last week we did Facebook Live. This week we're trying YouTube Live. Um, and I know that Etz Chaim, the synagogue that we are renting from here, uh, they're starting to invest in some equipment, um, some high-definition cameras and um, an encoder and all sorts of other stuff that I think will improve the quality, the technical quality of our services online. So join us for that. And the fact that you guys are commenting, I can see the comments back and forth, is a beautiful way where you're reaching out and connecting with others. Obviously, follow the slides. And Pastor Mark has put together a children's ministry slide deck that I want you to check out as well. So those are there for you, um, for the parents and for the families to make sure that you're participating with your kids as well. And I believe, um, we'll double check, I believe Pastor Mark is still going to continue to push some of those resources out. Oh, he's giving me the thumbs up right there. Uh, we have a new function, which is text Spark Church to 84576, and we're going to start communicating um, a variety of encouragements, um, things that we can do to just continue to keep in touch with you all uh, that way. So that's a new function that we have, and we've got a couple of you signed up. I'd love to get more of you signed up for that. And then, of course, if you're joining us new or you still haven't yet joined our weekly email, please encourage you to do that. And we're going to do everything that we can to try to keep in touch and connected with all of you during this season. There's some other things that have been really, really cool. Um, Eric, who's uh, part of our community here, Eric Schmidt, 
has offered to provide technical support to anybody out there who might happen to be uncertain, like, how do I get YouTube Live or Facebook Live or any of this stuff or the Zoom, any of that stuff? And Eric's actually been doing some of this work um, through a local nonprofit organization for several years. Eric, thank you so much. It was a, man, that was just a wonderful, beautiful expression of a community. I have a gift, I have a, a talent, a skill, and I want to offer it to the community. So that may not apply to those of you who are watching right now because you've got it all set. Um, but maybe you know another Sparker or somebody else that could use a little help in trying to figure out how to set up the technical stuff. Please just let me know. get you in touch with Eric. Uh, Pamela Simpson, who's the leader of our prayer team, is monitoring and receiving, and I know this for certain, is praying for all of the prayer requests that come in at prayer at spark.church. Um, and so, uh, man, you're feeling lonely. You're uncertain. Maybe you're part of a, an economic system. You're part of a, a job, pardon me. You're part of a job whose economy is really dependent upon that day-to-day. And uh, we already know that some sparkers have lost some, uh, some work, and, and therefore they're losing income as a result of this season. And you just need some prayer and support. So please make sure that you reach out to us, and we're going to continue to pray with you and for you. Um, and then one of the other resources that's been really helpful, many of you may not know, we actually have a private Facebook page that was started a long time ago. We haven't really pushed it, but this particular season seems to be an appropriate time to do that. It's called Sparkers Connect, uh, and Pastor Danielle is the primary admin over that, and she would love to connect with you. And we are, We've already seen several Sparkers just reach out and connect and help uh, one another through that f- private Facebook page there, so you can check that out if you'd like. Now, connection was also was part of Robert Lustig's thing, but contribution was the second piece. And let me tell you, this is um, all of this. All of this is another reason why I love Spark and I love our community. The rescue team during this season has um, already met. They've met online via email meeting, and they've already designated um, the tithe from Spark um, to go to particular organizations. There's a COVID solidar- COVID-19 solidarity response fundraiser for the World Health Organization. Um, there's We Hope. Uh, an organization that we've already been volunteering and supporting for some time. Pastor Paul Baines was a speaker here a while ago. Second Harvest um, of Silicon Valley. And we've already started to uh, designate some funds set aside to possibly help some of our congregation who's affected by this season. So the rescue team has been discussing and um, just uh, so so amazing hearts. We're going to start donating to these organizations as a part of our tithe at this particular uh, season and then start um, making sure that we are contributing. And if you would uh, like to contribute, I know that We Hope is uh, receiving some, uh, f- uh, excuse me, some donations during this time. Um, and so if you would like to drop those off, uh, you can go to We Hope's website, and we will make sure that uh, we continually push to you all of those things that could be uh, ways in which you can contribute. So, I wanted to share all that with you before we even got to a message part because this is really an amazing, um, an amazing community. There's people that have offered. I know Allison has offered to run errands or shopping support for those who are maybe in a more vulnerable population, whether because of your uh, immunocompromised or because you're elderly and you just can't get out of the house in the same way out of fear. Allison's willing to do, run some errands for you, go shopping for you. 
um, we, we have a couple of sparkers who have already uh, pulled together and posted like on Twitter and Facebook some parent and family creative ideas because all the schools are closed. So what do you do with your kids at home while you're working at home? So we have some of those resources. Um, we have a couple sparkers that are going to start launching online small groups and Bible studies. I know one of our uh, small groups is already going to meet online. And then, of course, I mentioned tech support with Eric. So uh, there's some amazing things going on during the season. I'm sorry that's a lot, but I wanted to hopefully encourage you and I hope, hope you feel inspired and encouraged because this community is really doing some amazing things, even in the midst of this particular season. Everything that I've just mentioned, I'm going to do my best to make sure it's updated at Spark's homepage. The first page, the landing page of spark.church now is this stuff. So you can go there and get updates, and I'm going to try to keep updating. And as I get more information from you all about what's happening, I'll make sure that that website is updated. Okay, last piece before I get to like a message piece. Thanks for hanging. We are core values driven. And when the leadership team got together and started asking some questions like, what are, are we, how are we to respond? There's obviously the physical and the medical, uh, the civic responsibility that we have, but we also feel like we're called to a higher responsibility, which is to live out our values in this season. So my encouragement to you in the midst of fear and anxiety and worry which, by the way, is legitimate. There is a very real disease happening. Um, there are very real people dying. Um, I'm glad we are continuing to pray for them and the families. Um, so this is a very real thing. So it's understandable. But being followers of Jesus and being driven by core values means that we are also driven not by fear and anxiety. In fact, we're not driven by those things. We recognize those realities. But we're really driven by how do we love in this season? How do we amplify and, you know, advance God's reputation? How do we reconcile? How do we rescue and how do we resurrect? How do we do those things? So I would like for the Spark community, my encouragement and exhortation to you is ask the question, how can we talk about God and disease in this particular season? I, there's, it's so frustrating for me, and I know many for you, there's already religious figures out there that are scapegoating certain populations and saying, that, well, the reason why we have this disease is because of so-and-so or so such-and-such group. And we fight against that. That is not the reputation of God that we push out into the world. That is not the punitive... That punitive view of God is not what we talk about here. We talk about a, a, a God who is long-suffering and compassionate and gracious, gracious and comes down and suffers with us. So how do we talk about God and disease in this particular season? Consider how we relate to others and our world. Uh, seasons like this in anxiety and tension can cause rifts in relationships. Um, whether that's marriage or friendships or whatever. And so I would like for you and for us and myself as well to ask the question, how do I relate to others and our world in the midst of this season? I'm actually going to try to do my best to address this through the first introduction in Ephesians. How can we bring relief and support? The rescue team has already done some work in that, and that's been really, really beautiful. And consider how can new life emerge even in the midst of death? Where can we find those seeds that are planted for new life to come? And then underneath it all and grounding all of it, what does love require in this particular moment? Not just, how do I protect myself? How do I keep myself safe? That's a good question. But we also need to ask the question, what does love require in this particular moment? And I think that we're going to see that as we get into uh, Ephesians and the beginning. So thanks so much for being the community. Um, Let me share with you, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to share with you the first opening introduction 
to the book of Ephesians, and uh, hopefully it will be a blessing to you and encouragement and inspiration in some particular way. Uh, God, thank you so much for um, allowing us through all of this amazing technology to still gather and meet. And I am reminded of the very early church in which the gatherings happened in homes and in tight-knit communities and in small groups. And so as the Spark community is gathering together, may we be reminded that we are and have always been this kind of church, a church that gathers together, worships, learns through your teaching, and encourages one another to break bread and to love in this way. So even though we are distant and even though we're being mediated by a technology, there is, there is nothing that can get in the way of your spirit continually unifying us and drawing us close together to one another and to yourself. And do that again, even in this time. And everybody out there said, Amen. Amen. <laughs> okay. Um, we had planned and we are in a beginning of a series on the book or the letter to Ephesians, which is a letter that we call a book. It's found in the New Testament um, of a guy by the name of Paul who wrote this to a group of churches in a region in Asia Minor that was called Ephesus, and hence it's called Ephesians. And normally in this particular time, I think I would prepare a message that would dig deep into its history and its roots and all that kind of stuff, and I got a little bit of that here. But given the context that we're in, I think I'm going to try to pull back a little bit and see what the introduction to this particular letter, which is kind of an introduction to other letters, might teach us about this season and this time. I'm calling this message, God is our context. God is our context. Now, many of you might have seen this before. I shared this illustration uh, many years ago. If I throw, threw up the word book and asked you to define that, how would you define that? Maybe all the kids that are there, maybe if they're watching and paying attention, like, how would you define the word book? Like, what is it? Like, what is its definition? And immediately, I'm imagining, you've probably got some around your house that you're looking at, that you can open up and that you can look at. It's got pages, it's got binding, it's got writing on it, etc. But what if I did this? I have to book my reservation. Immediately as I put some other things around it, the definition of the word book actually changes. And then the very close correspondent, I'm sorry, but we're all booked up. It's the exact same word, but now with other things around it, the definition, the meaning of the word book is actually different. Let's try another one. <clears throat> the judge threw the book at me. Some of us, unfortunately, might be familiar with this phrase. <laughs> um, it's the exact same word, book. But this definition, the judge threw the book at me, um, has a very ominous and very negative connotation. It's not the physical artifact that it was before. It's something very, very different. We're running late. We better book it, which might be an older term. You know, I'm not quite sure which generation is still using this phrase. And then this phrase, he does everything by the book. He does everything by the book. Now, the whole point of this particular exercise, which could be done in a variety of ways, is that the word book actually doesn't mean anything. The word book only has meaning when the things around it begin to contextualize what the word book actually means. 
In other words, context is what is meaningful. And everything in our world that we wrestle with, everything that we try to figure out how to make meaning of, requires us to think about context and to think about not just the thing. The thing itself doesn't mean anything. It's all the things that we put around it that give it meaning. The book of Ephesians really shouldn't be called a book. It's actually a letter. It's a letter from one person to another group of people. And people who are a part of this study, and many of you out there already know this because you're, you're English majors and you teach this stuff, that of all the genres that exist, a letter is one of the genres of writing that really demands the most attention to the context and the environment than other kinds of writings. There are some writings that are meant to go broad. There are some writings that are meant to be read by a wide audience. Letters are meant to be read by specific audiences. And so when we're talking about a letter to Ephesians, we're talking about a very specific conversation that Paul is having. And in order for us to really dig into what it's meaning, we have to look at not what is just in the letter. We have to look at what's not in the letter. We have to look at the things that are outside of it and around it. This is a humorous example. I hope it's funny. If not, well, chalk it up to bad pastoring. Um, there was a story that was told, it's folklorish, of a woman who was going to travel from England to India, and she was concerned that the facilities that she was renting out did not have a bathroom. But in England, you don't call a bathroom a bathroom, you call it a WC for water closet. So she sent a letter ahead of her travel saying, I'm just inquiring, do you have a WC? Because I want to know if I'm, all is going to be well. Now, the people who received this letter uh, didn't quite know what a WC was. And so they were trying to figure out what exactly uh, she meant by this. And the only thing that she could think, they could think of was a chapel that they had actually a, a connected with the facility, a connected with the residential area where she was going to be at. And the chapel is called the Wayside Chapel. So the WC, because they thought, you know, oh, you're talking about the Wayside Chapel. She's talking about the bathroom, the water closet, they're talking about the Wayside Chapel, the place where you have, you know, church services, etc., like this. And so, they write back a letter prior to the meeting. Dear ma'am, madam, I take great pleasure in informing you that the WC is located nine miles from the house. It is located in the middle of a grove of pine trees surrounded by lovely grounds. It is capable of holding 229 people and is open on Sundays and Thursdays. As there are many people expected in the summer months, I suggest you arrive early. There is, however, plenty of standing room. This is an unfortunate situation, especially if you are in the middle, or if you are in the habit of going regularly. It may be of some interest to you that my daughter was married in the WC since she met her husband there. It was a wonderful event. There were 10 people in every seat. It was wonderful to see the expressions on their faces. My wife, sadly, has been ill and unable to go recently. It has been almost a year since she went last, which pains her greatly. You will be pleased to know that many people bring their lunch and make a day of it. Others prefer to wait till the last minute and arrive just in time. I would recommend that your ladyship plan to go on a Thursday, as there is an organ accompaniment. The acoustics are excellent, and even the most delicate sounds can be heard everywhere. The newest addition is a bell which rings every time a person enters. We are holding a bazaar to provide plush seats for all, since many feel it is long needed. I look forward to escorting you there myself and seating you in a place where you can be seen by all. 
Now, elements of that letter obviously sound a little bit folklorish to me, but it's a story that has actually been used in trainings and developments for people to say, your context actually matters. What, you, what one person's context is, is really important for communication and understanding. And if you don't have the same context, then the exact same words, the exact same definition, the, uh, the exact same words, the, the exact same spelling, the WC, all that stuff, means something actually very radically different. One last illustration of this that I think is fun, and hopefully you can read this wherever you are, either on another device or through the screen. Uh, psychologists have noticed that if you take words like this, and hopefully you can see this, go ahead and do your best to try to read that paragraph. What does it actually say? Can you read it? It doesn't matter in what order the letters in a word appear. The only important thing is that the first and last letter are in the right place. The rest can be a total mess and you can still read it without problem. This has been an example used in psychology to recognize that the reason why we can do this and the conclusion of the studies of this is because context is really, really, really important. Put this in front of somebody who hasn't quite learned English or hasn't grown up in the same environment that we have for all the other meaning structures that we have, and they can't read this. But for those of you who English is a primary language, whether it's primary or secondary, and, and you're fluent, you can read this. The conclusion, context matters. Context is everything when it comes to how we understand meaning. So, what does that have to do with Ephesians? And with the rest of the letters, and with the rest of our study, actually? What I'm going to do is read some of these passages, and there's a lot that we could point out. I'd like to point out just simply one specific area of context that I think is really important for us, and especially during this season with the virus and quarantining and isolation and all that good stuff, all that stuff. Ephesians chapter 1. And as we read through, I want you to consider and ask the question, what is the, con- what is the other stuff around? What might he be addressing when he writes these things? Because he's not writing these things just at, um, in a blanket way. He's writing them within the particular context. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Look at these words. Before the foundation of the world. Holy, blameless, before him in love. You can already, if you think about it, there's already a context here that he's trying to address. Blessing before the foundation of the world. The people receiving this may have been struggling or wrestling or wondering or curious about what is my identity? What is my place with God? How do I, what is my relationship with God? Am I actually a holy one? Is love really at the center of this whole thing? And so that, that's some of how you address these things when you're asking about context. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through the blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, 
He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. Now, the reason why I've highlighted some of these passages is because inheritance, destiny, purpose, accomplishing things, these are all words that are addressing a particular meaning set that the recipients of this letter would have had. Inheritance has something to do with family and what I get when I die or what is how the economy continues to move forward. Uh, destiny, according to the purpose of him, may have something to do with ancient Greek and Roman culture about what you are destined for. In fact, we know that we have writings that say that if you happen to be a slave or a woman or a child or in a lower economic system, there are philosophical schools of thought that said you were destined for that. That's clearly how the universe was made up. And so that's who you are. That's where you're supposed to be. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time here. I just want to point, I want to get our brains flesh uh, kind of working out and exercise towards what is the thing behind this? What is the context in which that Paul is addressing here? And what are all the meaning structures that people would have had? And if we can do that, then we can start to see there, there's, a, there's, a bigger, there's a bigger context that Paul is attempting to draw us in towards um, that is really beautiful and astounding. Now, I want to address one thing. Ephesians chapter 1, this passage that we just read, has actually been used frequently, and many of us who have grown up in the church and grown up within the context of specifically evangelicalism have heard this, this phrase, predestination. Uh, predestination is a big theological word that just simply means before the beginning of time, God has determined who we are and where we're supposed to be when it comes to our salvation and our redemption. Um, it can have an expression such as, you are predestined to live this particular life, or you are predestined for heaven or hell. Um, some of it, ha- and there's all sorts of different gradations of it, uh, some of it has to do with um, whether or not you are actually a Christian. Um, and a lot of it has to do with a real tight focus on, well, God is sovereign over all, therefore, you know, we can't determine everything. If you take Ephesians 1 out of its context and don't ask the question, what is all the other stuff around it? Then this kind of actually makes sense. The idea that God predestined, we can create a theology around this. But as many of you know, and as many of you have wrestled with, predestination or those ideas, that context, that sense, um, has some problems or some challenges. So for example, if you can read this one cartoon over on the side, Uh, this gentleman is lying in the bed and the woman standing next to him says, this is all according to God's plan. And then there's a picture of God, supposedly, with a halo, um, with a to-do list. Make universe, number two, give Steve a tumor. Um, This image is about God knitting together and actually putting everything together. Um, This is kind of a humorous cartoon where an angel's opening the door and God is working on the grand scheme of things and, and making everything work out. So predestination is one of these pieces of the puzzle that emerges out of a, here's the key thing, decontextualizing, not thinking about the greater context of these letters. Stuff like this can happen. And then it gets into this battle over free will and and, and, predestination. How much will do I actually have? And I love this image. How dare you? Do I do what I already predetermined you would do? Darn it. 
And by the way, I love that all these images of God are of old white men because that's just as false as all the entire, the rest of the theology here. So, earlier I mentioned that some people have talked about God and talked about the current coronavirus in terms that sound very similar to this. And in fact, if we don't think about the context of letters and we don't think about the context of what God is doing and the whole context and the the garden-to-garden grand narrative that Daniel has so faithfully taught on, um, then we end up with stuff like this. Coronavirus, COVID-19 is clearly God's punishment, God's judgment, God's plan, God's will, God's desire, and even God's goodness. And you can see all sorts of iterations of this. And honestly, these uh, these kinds of expressions are, um, uh, I'll let you fill in the blank. How does it make you feel? What kind of expression, what kind of reputation of God does this have? How does this advance God's goodness and love and, and rescue? Ephesians 1 in predestination could very easily turn into stuff like this. And what I hope to do is show that we, in approaching our text, in approaching this wonderful, brilliant text that we have, by recontextualizing what world Paul was writing into, what were the circumstances, situations? What were the meanings around those words? Destination, um, preordained. What were what were the what would what did they mean about? It? If we can get to that world, then all of the unfortunate teachings and theologies that emerge will hopefully dissolve, and we don't have to fight those anymore. This is just an introduction, and there's a lot more to say, um, but I think it's appropriate to start with one specific area of context in the ancient world, and that's disease. Kyle Harper wrote this book, The Fate of Rome, and previous uh, discussions about the fall of the Roman Empire have talked about battle and war. Um, They've talked about barbarians. But Kyle's approach, uh, Dr. Harper's approach here, is really unique. If you can see the subtitle, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire. In other words, his approach is to start looking at what were the effects of climate change in ancient Rome and what were the effects of rampant disease, like the bubonic plague in ancient Rome. And if we were to look at those particular elements that contextualized the development of the fall of Rome, that gives us a completely different picture. And uh, the reason why we can write this now is because we have archaeological remains from skeletons as well as DNA evidence. And we can very, um, they, not we, they can very faithfully track the dates of the bones and the skeletons and the diseases and the climate and all that kind of stuff. So uh, his work is, is really intriguing in that sense. Do we think about climate disease, and ultimately this is about the environment and the, the world in which we live, and how this empire ultimately had its demise? Here's just a few quotes to hopefully sum up a little bit of his general thesis. The end of Rome's empire, then, is a story in which humanity and the environment cannot be separated. Or rather, it is one chapter in the still unfolding story of our relationship with the environment. In other words, we have been wrestling with our environment, our context, our natural context, since the beginning of time. And because we live in a technological society, while I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, We don't always think about the environment in the same way. So when diseases emerge, we're sometimes caught off guard or or uncertain about how to deal with this. 
The fate of Rome might serve to remind us that nature is cunning and capricious. The deep power of evolution can change the world in a mere moment. Aren't we experiencing that? Surprise and paradox lurk in the heart of progress. In the introduction, he shows this picture of a Roman ship, and they are about headed, they're headed to um, Portus is the question mark, whether or not that's where they're headed. And on board are lions in cages that are destined for the amphitheater. And he uses this illustration to say that even back in the Roman Empire, people, humans, believed and thought that they could capture, captivate, control, uh, subdue and nature. And so the lions and the animals and other human beings were an, an expression of or evidence of we humans for a long time have thought that we were actually in control, that we had power, that we had domination and dominion over the world. So we can cage animals. Uh, we can discard people with disease. We can do all sorts of things because we are in some ways above and separate from that nature and that environment. And what he is suggesting is it is that hubris, it is that arrogance, it is that philosophy that the Romans held on to, that we are ultimately over nature, not within it, and have no responsibility to it, that was a huge factor in why Rome fell. He uh, closes his book by saying, Our graver perils lie in the exhaust fumes of abundance rather than the razor's edge of scarcity. I mean, that quote uh, is, is, is terrifyingly uh, brilliant. The thing that we should be concerned about is our abundance rather than scarcity because we continually push, push, push further for gaining more things, acquiring more things, hoarding more toilet paper from Costco. We, we have abundance. Um, and that's the thing that we should actually be fearful of. Our story and the story of the planet are inseparable. Our human story has always been about our relationship with the natural world, nature, and the environment. So there's a lot of context, but one of the things I want to focus on that seems to be relevant for our time is the context of disease in the ancient Roman world. And the question that I want to ask is, how did Christians behave in that context? What was, if disease was rampant, and we know that disease and plague um, killed millions of people in the ancient world. Again, we're starting to collect these remains and the archaeological remains, etc. Um, what was the Christian response? What was, what was their attitude and philosophy and perspective towards this? And we have an insight from ancient anthropologists and historians, um, and this acclaimed book, Plagues and Peoples, by William McNeil, talks extensively about Christianity's response to the plagues and the disease of the ancient world. And he writes this. One advantage Christians had over their pagan contemporaries was that care of the sick, even in time of pestilence, was for them a recognized religious duty. When all normal services break down, quite elementary nursing will greatly reduce mortality. Doesn't that sound familiar? When all normal services break down. This is like when a plague breaks out, you know, Rome is basically saying, if you have the plague, you are out of here. You, you cannot come uh, to the palace. You cannot get any services. We are leaving you literally, quite literally on the road to die. Um, elementary nursing practices actually help. They, um, he goes on to write, simple provision of food and water, for instance, will allow persons who are temporarily too weak to cope for themselves to recover instead of perishing 
miserably. Christian writers were well aware of this source of strength and sometimes boasted of the way in which Christians offered each other mutual help in times, uh, time of pestilence. Whereas, and here's the key thing, pagans fled from the sick and heartlessly abandoned them. And why wouldn't you? There's very real fear and anxiety. You're watching misery, excruciating pain, disease, and death, skeletons everywhere. So why wouldn't you want to flee? That was the particular context of that world, and it makes sense. But what I find fascinating and a little breathtaking and a little daunting, actually, is that there was a, there was a philosophy, there was a religion in the ancient world that believed that there was actually a different context. There was a much bigger story that was being told just uh, rather than just people are dying and people are getting sick. And it was the Christians in the ancient Roman period that believed that context in such a way that they actually lived in a different way that brought help in times of pestilence. He writes specifically, the teachings of their faith made life meaningful, even amidst sudden and surprising death. God's omnipotence made life meaningful in time of disaster as well as in time of prosperity. Indeed, untoward and unexpected disaster, shattering pagan pride and undermining secular institutions made God's hand more evident than it was in quiet times. In fact, even during the most difficult, pestilent-filled times, that's when we started to see the development of what God's love and compassion and the universality of God that every human being has made in his image started to come alive. Christianity was, therefore, a system of thought and feeling thoroughly adapted to a time of trouble, of t- uh, to a time of troubles in which hardship, disease, and violent death commonly prevailed. My proposition to you, my friends, is that the ancient world had a context about the environment and nature, and they believed that they thought they were going to overcome it, and if they couldn't overcome it, people who succumbed to the disease were just simply left off to the side to die. We have ancient writings that I didn't put in here uh, that were kind of hard to read uh, about people, descriptions of people dying of a disease on the side of the road with nobody offering not even a, a word, a glance, and having to die in their own filth. But Christianity had a different view. They had a different, here's the key thing, system of thought and feeling. The disease was one thing. That's the book. But what Christianity brought, this movement of Jesus brought, is an entirely different context to that disease. Death could be overcome. Healing could be brought. Humanity and dignity could still be gained. I live out love and compassion and mercy. And that was the context that they brought to the story. And that was the context that they brought to the world. Um, Rodney Stark, in in another book that just came to mind, writes that as a result of this, Christians actually lived longer and grew in population because they had fewer death, they had a fewer death rate. So this is my proposal. God was their context. The whole point of Christianity, the movement of Jesus, and the letters that Paul is writing in conjunction with this movement is to say, yeah, there's a very real reality here on earth. But our context, what makes the thing that we put around it, the thing that gives all of that meaning, is much higher, much bigger, connected to our deeper story. 
The letters of Paul in spreading the Jesus tradition encouraged all people to consider a larger context. Who and what God is and was doing in the world and to join in those efforts. And it was that belief that gave them their context for the faith for how they lived. They believed in something bigger. And so when you read this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. This is an argument for thinking about your situation and your circumstance in much larger terms than just the simple, mere, brute reality of your circumstance. This Ephesians series I'm super excited about. Um, the other pastors are going to be joining in in a variety of teach- teaches. Uh, adoption is a theme in here. Love is a theme in here. Um, the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, friendship is a theme in this, in this letter. There's all sorts. Mystery is a theme. And we're out of context. All of these things can mean all sorts of things that we get to make up. But what the writers are attempting to do, what I, what I see Paul doing in this letter, and what I think is encouraging for us to, in this particular day, is to recognize we live by a bigger context. It's not a denial. And let me, let me just say this. Please note this. <clears throat> I am not suggesting that we then believe things over or versus the scientific evidence of disease or anything like that. Please hear me. I am not saying that. What I am saying, it's just the opposite. It's because we believe in a greater context of love and care and compassion and life and resurrection, because we believe in those things that contextualize our current circumstance and situation, we have to know how best that works in the world. And so we dig into the very best information in science and reporting and all that stuff so that we can best understand and best know how that greater meaning, that greater context is deployed in the world. That is what we're doing. That is what this letter is attempting to do. That is what I see Paul doing in his writings. We are creating a much bigger context and we are leaning into and believing a much bigger context than the mere fact of our existence or our place in this time. And that's what I mean by God is our context. To understand our current place, it's very easy to look very specifically at the virus, isolation, all of that stuff, the thing that we're doing. I get it. And it's reasonable. It's understandable. Um, I guess my hope and my encouragement is for us to lean into the thing that we actually do believe, the thing that we trust, that there is a far bigger context. And this is the God that we worship, the story that we tell, the creation narrative, that this is just really just a blip. The ancient people, our ancestors, dealt with a plague. They dealt with disease. They dealt with climate change. They dealt with all the same things that we're dealing with. And they saw it through a different lens and a perspective. And they believed that there was deep meaning found in their identity in Christ. And so that is what Paul is doing in this time and in this season. So thanks so much for joining us for um, this time of teach. I hope some of that was encouragement. As always, and especially now that you're at home, this is hopefully the beginning of a conversation, not the end. What happens at the pulpit is not the end-all be-all, but hopefully a beginning of a conversation that you can have. I am uncertain whether or not you have actually prepared communion, um, but we will say the words of institution 
and you can spiritually take communion or physically take communion if you've prepared that. Um, This is our context. A Christ who died, who suffered, who felt what we felt, who engaged and entered into our world. And so in the midst of our fear and anxiety, in the midst of our uncertainty, this is our context. And so we take communion together and we commune and we remember Christ's death and burial and resurrection. That's the story that we're living. Yes, this time is difficult. Oh man, we're going to reach out, we're going to love, and we're going to encourage one another during this time. But we're also going to encourage us to think there is a much bigger story and a much bigger context. And if we can see what God is doing and get connected with that and live into that way, we will find connection, community, coping, and cooking together. That's what we get to do together. And through the engagement of that, we'll find joy and happiness, even in this season. And Spark is going to do everything that we can uh, to facilitate and to encourage and to make all that happen during this season. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may take communion, the body and the blood of Christ, which is shed for you. And then join us in singing a closing song. And we'll see you in a moment for some closing remarks. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining us. Um, It's kind of weird staring into a camera, but I trust um, that all of you, uh, I I can sense and feel your hearts. Um, I see the comments that are coming in and um, I'm just so grateful to all of you. Um, if you are able to stand, if you are not already standing, I just want to say a blessing over all of us during this time. To all of you sparkers, uh, wherever you are watching, um, may you live into God's greater story. May you find comfort in the particularity of this current moment because you know that God is writing a much bigger context, a much bigger story that is giving this moment meaning. May you find connection in the season with others. May you find opportunities to contribute, to know once again that your life is valuable. May you find comfort and peace in the settling of your soul. And may you cook a gosh darn good meal in the midst of your family and your home. In his name, in Jesus' name, amen.